Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Farm to Table News with your host, Lincoln Brown. That's right, folks, the first and only non-GMO, additive-free, organic, grass-fed, free-range, and cruelty-free media outlet. As always, sources and references will be listed at farmtotable.news. Again, that is F-A-R-M-T-O-T-A-B-L-E dot N-E-W-S. Now, it is already clear to hopefully all of you that the production style is ever-evolving and improving. And with that, we can collectively thank and congratulate the newest member of Farm to Table News. Joining us as a senior OSINT analyst is BJ Slomsky out of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. From this episode onwards, Mr. BJ Slomsky will be the director of all social media accounts. More significantly, Mr. Slomsky is at full liberty to upload new editions of Farm to Table, and he is permitted the authority to act and speak on behalf of Farm to Table News. Two immediate qualities that separated B.J. Slomsky from the other candidates were his extensive and thorough knowledge of U.S. history received through his higher education in Gettysburg, and secondly, the juxtaposition of self-discipline and creativity, which are key qualities that Farm to Table seeks out in its intelligence staffing. With that, Mr. B.J. Slomsky, I would like to formally welcome you to the groundbreaking and limitless bounds of Farm to Table News. It should also be noted, Farm to Table News is a rapidly growing outlet, and there is always a necessity for a gathering of intel. If you are interested in becoming a journalist under the principles of open source intelligence, send an email over to contact at farmtotable.news. Again, that's C-O-N-T-A-C-T at F-A-R-M-T-O-T-A-B-L-E dot N-E-W-S. Now, all that stuff's out of the way. Where to begin? Hmm. Oh, yes. With my retractions. Uh, Dr. Stanley Milgram attended Harvard undergraduate, but conducted the specific shock experiments while at Yale University. So, we probably should just not listen to farm-to-table news anymore if he's going to publish misinformation under the guise of fact and open-sourced investigation. Golly gee. Well, if you can get past that extremely important difference between Yale and Harvard, where the studies were conducted, we can take a listen. In order to understand how people were induced to obey unjust regimes and participate in atrocities such as the Holocaust, he set up an experiment. Volunteers were told they were taking part in scientific research to improve memory. Would you open those and tell me which of you is which, please? Teacher. Separated by a screen, the teacher would ask the learner questions in a word game and administer an electric shock when the answer was incorrect. 
he was told to increase the voltage with each wrong answer. Cloud, horse, rock, house. Answer, wrong. 150 volts. Answer, horse. Experiment, that's all. Get me out of here. Get me out of here, please. Continue, please. Go right on. I refuse to go on. Let me out. The experiment requires you continue, teacher. Please continue. Participants didn't know that the learner was really an actor and the so-called sharks harmless. You're going to get a shock, 180 volts. Oh. I can't stand the pain. Let me out of here. You can't stand it. I'm not going to kill that man in there. I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens here. Continue, please. All right, next one. Slow. Walk, dance, truck, music. Two-thirds of volunteers were prepared to administer a potentially fatal electric shock when encouraged to do so by what they perceived as a legitimate authority figure. In this case, a man in a white coat. 375 volts. I think something's happened to that fellow in there. I don't get no answer. He was hollering with less voltage. Can't you check in to see if he's all right, please? Milgram's findings horrified America. They showed that decent American citizens were as capable of committing acts against their conscience as the Germans had been under the Nazis. Now, the most important thing going into this was that all of the psychiatrists and colleagues that Milgram asked, every one of them said the same thing. No, 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 that won't happen. A regular person's not going to kill somebody just because someone in a lab coat says so. And they uh, created a baseline, essentially, of about 1% they estimated would be the percentage of participants who administer these lethal shocks. Which raises the question, how could they all be so f***ing wrong? Just absolutely false. <laughs> in their guests, they, you know, these are Yale and Harvard psychiatrists who truly need to give their head a shake, don't know what's going on. But what can we really attribute instead of haha, how stupid? What can we really look at for the miscalculations of these studies and the, the you know, the reason that they were so wrong? Um, one of the most believable, in my opinion, is the fundamental attribution error. This is something everyone does all the time, including me. And it's every time that we focus primarily on the person and we ignore the situation. That's fundamental attribution error. Now let's put that in terms of psychiatrists predicting Milgram shock experiment. A psychiatrist's entire training is only in the dispositional analysis. For psychiatrists, everything is inside your head. Beauty, ugly, smart, dumb, pretty, uh, same thing. Good, evil, sanity, and insanity are all in your head. And that meant that by focusing on these dispositional characteristics and traits, 
that meant they ignored all of the situational variables the lab coat the roles you're playing the diffusion of responsibility the rules that are changing and they ignored all of these to say one percent so rather than exclusively being a study in blind disobedience to authority which it is described it's also a study in not knowing how to exit a horrible situation where suddenly this authority just and right is now the complete opposite unjust and wrong the pratt institute of general psychology class of 2012 attributes this uh, by stating these people did what they were ordered to do rather than listening to their conscience which shows that the external situational factors were more influential than the internal dispositional factors now knowing the external situational factors and how gosh darn important they are let's take a look back let's circle back because after all life is a flat circle onto stanley milgram's tv and antisocial behavior i want to recap what we touched upon last edition as well as add a few very interesting points that I glossed over last edition. Firstly, let's define antisocial behavior. These are actions that harm or lack consideration for the mental conditioning of others. And this was a 2003 definition, uh, Worth Publishers, The Developing Person Through Childhood and Adolescence. Well, what in the conclusion did Dr. Milgram attribute to be the biggest situational factors and the most likely and the best scenario in which the subject would imitate these antisocial behaviors well it was two things one it was the repetition the frequency at which violence and antisocial acts are seen that is going to certainly and exponentially increase the likelihood of an actual subject carrying that out in real life but most importantly is the early onset exposure to antisocial behavior. It is worth mentioning that Milgram cites himself a study by Barkus in 1971 in the introduction, which calls for his field studies. Barkus, 1971, examining Saturday morning children's programming, reported that three of ten dramatic segments were saturated with violence and that 71% had at least one instance of human violence with or without the use of weapons. Ah, yes. The beauty of childlike wonder. The impressionable and moldable young mind. There is a certain logic that follows that a younger and sheltered person, a child, would be less susceptible to Milgram's experiment and the blind obedience of authority because, after all, what do children really know about authority and who is the authoritative figure? Uh, what does a white coat signify? What does a badge signify? Well, Jane Elliott in 1970 sought out the answers. How are you? 
are black people treated? How are Indians treated? How are people who are of a different color than we are like treated? They, like, like they are part of this place. world. They don't get anything of this world. Like, Why is that? Because they're different colors. You think you know how I would feel yeah. to be judged by the color of your skin? Yeah. I don't, do you think you do? No, I don't think you'd know how that felt unless you had been through it, would you? <laughs> It might be interesting to judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? Yeah! Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Since I'm the teacher and I have blue eyes, I think maybe the blue-eyed people should be on top the first day. I mean, the blue-eyed people are the better people in this room. Oh, yes, they are. Mm. Yeah. Blue-eyed people are smarter than brown-eyed people. <laughs> My dad isn't that stupid. Uh, is your dad brown-eyed? Yeah. One day you came to school and you told us that he kicked you. He did. Do you think a blue-eyed father would kick his son? Yeah. My dad would. My dad's blue-eyed. He's never kicked me. Greg's dad is blue-eyed. He's never kicked him. Rex's dad is blue-eyed. He's never kicked him. This is a this is a fact. Blue-eyed people are better than brown-eyed people. Are you brown-eyed or blue-eyed? Blue. Why are you shaking your head? Are you sure that you're right? Why? What makes you so sure that you're right? The blue-eyed people get five extra minutes of recess, while the brown-eyed people have to stay in. The brown-eyed people do not get to use the drinking fountain. You'll have to use the paper cups. You brown-eyed people are not to play with the blue-eyed people on the playground, because you are not as good as blue-eyed people. Well, the brown-eyed people in this room today are going to wear collars so that we can tell from a distance what color your eyes are. On page 127? 127. Is everyone ready? Everyone but Laurie. Ready, Laurie? She's a brown-eyed. You'll begin to notice today that we spend a great deal of time waiting for brown-eyed people. The yardstick's gone. Well, okay. I don't see the yardstick, do you? Hey, Mrs. Lincoln, you better keep that on your desk so if the um, brown people, brown-eyed people get out of hand. Oh! You think if the brown-eyed people get out of hand, that would be the thing to use? Who goes first to lunch? The blue-eyed blue people. No brown-eyed people go back for seconds. Blue-eyed people may go back for seconds. Brown-eyed people do not. Brown eyes. Don't you know? Oh, they're not smart. Is that the My only reason? It might take too much. Oh, okay, quietly. And it seems like when we were down on the bottom, everything bad was happening to us. The way they treated you, you felt like you didn't even want to try to do anything. It seemed like Mrs. Elliott was taking our best friends away from us. 
around at recess. Were two of you boys fighting? Yeah. yeah. Russell and John. Russell. What happened, John? Russell called me names and I hit him. Hit him in the gut. What did he call you? Brown eyes. Did you call him brown eyes? They always call us that. Yeah. You want to get all of the, um... Yeah. You always call us that. They call us brown eyes. They say, come here, brown eyes. Then they would call us blue eyes. I wasn't. Sandy and Donna were. Yeah. What's wrong with being called brown eyes? It means that we're stupid or, well, not that, yeah. but... Oh, that's just the same way as other people calling uh, black people niggers. Yeah. Is that the reason you hit him, John? Did it help? Did it stop him? Did it make you feel better inside? Stop Russell. Make you feel better inside? Did it make you feel better to call him brown eyes? Why do you suppose you call him brown eyes? Right, because he has brown eyes. Is that the only reason? He didn't call him brown eyes yesterday, and he had brown eyes yesterday. Didn't he? Because we just saw yeah, that. Yeah, ever since you put those blue things on there. Yeah. Tease him. Kind of tease him. Oh, is this teasing? No. Well, he did it. Were you doing it for fun, to be funny, or were you doing it to be mean? I don't know. Don't ask me. Did anyone laugh at you when you did I watched what had been marvelous, cooperative, wonderful, thoughtful children turn into nasty, vicious, discriminating little third graders in a space of 15 minutes. Now let's ask ourselves, were these children disposed to this eye color discrimination or was there an external situational factor that caused the children to behave so extremely ding 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 now let's bring the attention to how small and insignificant eye color is let's imagine if you will for a second a world where there is an immediate trait a physical characteristic that is recognizable as soon as you see someone like a deformity or perhaps a difference in skin tone and pigmentation imagine what division and anger could be caused by amplifying these differences and focusing and exasperating the every mistake and every tragedy or misfortune to this physical characteristic this attribute. To some degree, this leads me to an ever-popularized theory, but not included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders by the American Psychiatric Association. And this is Stockholm Syndrome, which is described as Cyclopedia Cyclopedia Britannica as the psychological response wherein a captive begins identifying closely with his or her captors as well as their agenda and demands. Wow, this 
seems like quite the phenomenon. I am going to go to my search engine and see what pops up. Okay. Well, here is history.com. The true story of hostages loyal to their captor. Uh, The true story? Oh, thank God. Finally, somebody has the truth. And history.com. I mean, it doesn't get more reliable than that. On the morning of August 1973, an escaped convict entered a bustling bank. From underneath the folded jacket he carried in his arms, the loaded submachine gun fired at the ceiling and disguised his voice to sound like an American, cried out in English, The party has just begun. After wounding a policeman who then responded to the sound, the robber took four bank employees hostage. The captor demanded more than 700000 in Swedish and foreign currency, a getaway car, and the release of his uh, former accomplice who was arrested in 1966. However, authorities refused Robert's demand to leave with the hostages in tow and ensure safe passage. The unfolding drama captured headlines around the world and played out in television screens across Sweden. The public flooded police headquarters with suggestions for ending the standoff that ranged from a concert of religious tunes by a Salvation Army band to sending a swarm of angry bees to sting the perpetrators into submission. Inside a cramped bank vault, the captives quickly forged a strange bond with their abductors. Olsen, who is the abductor, the captor, draped a wool jacket over the shoulders of a hostage when she began to shiver, soothed her when she had a bad dream, and gave her a bullet from his gun as a keepsake. Aww. The gunman consoled captive, blah, blah, burgundy, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name, when she couldn't reach her family by phone and told her, try it, get, don't give up. Aww. Olsen sounds like such a good guy. When the hostage complained of claustrophobia, he allowed her to walk outside the vault attached to a 30-foot rope. Oh my god, that is so sweet. The captor later told the New Yorker that although leashed, I remember thinking he was very kind to allow me to leave the vault. Olsen's benevolent acts curried the sympathy of his hostages. When he treated us well, said one lone male hostage, we could think of him as an emergency god. By the second day, the hostages were on a first-name basis with their captors, and they started to fear the police more than their abductors. When the police commissioner was allowed inside to inspect the hostages' health, he noticed that the captives appeared hostile to him, but relaxed and jovial with the gunmen. The police chief told the press that he doubted the gunmen would harm the hostages because they had developed a rather relaxed relationship. Even Swedish Prime Minister was phoned and pleaded with him to let the robbers take her with them in the escape car. I fully trust Clark and the robber, she assured. I am not desperate. They haven't done a thing wrong to us. On the contrary, they've been very nice. But, you know, Olaf, what I'm scared of is that the police will attack and cause us to die. 
Oh, this poor, this poor girl and these poor bank robbers. Even when threatened with physical harm, the hostages still saw compassion with their abductors. After Olsen threatened to shoot one of the captives in the leg to shake up the police, the hostages recounted to the New Yorker how kind I thought he was for saying it was just my leg he would shoot. Enmark tried to convince her fellow hostage to take the bullet. But Sven, it's just in the leg. Ultimately, the convicts did no physical harm to the hostages. And the night, August 28th, after more than 130 hours, the perpetrators quickly surrendered. The police called for the hostages to come out first, but the four captives, protecting their abductors to the very end, refused. One yelled, No! Jan and Clark go first! You'll gun them down if we do. In the doorway of the vault, the convicts and hostages embraced, kissed, and shook hands. As the police seized the gunmen, the hostages cried, Don't hurt them! They didn't hurt us! While Enmark was wheeled away on a stretcher, she shouted to the handcuffed Olofsson, Clark, I will see you again! Psychiatrists compared the behavior to the wartime shell shock exhibited by soldiers and explained that the hostages became emotionally indebted to their abductors and not to the police for being spared death. Within months of the siege, psychiatrists dubbed the strange phenomenon Stockholm Syndrome, which became part of the popular lexicon in 1974 in the case of Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liberation Army. Now, however detailed and accurate this story may be, on History.com, the true story, this is certainly not a new phenomenon or uh, a recently exploited characteristic of human condition. When black people like me talk to the slaves, they didn't kill them. They sent some old house negro along behind him to undo what he said. You have to read the history of slavery to understand this. There were two kinds of Negroes. There was that old house Negro and the field Negro. And the house Negro always looked out for his master. When the field Negroes got too much out of line, he held them back in check. He put them back on the plantation. The house Negro could afford to do that because he lived better than the field Negro. He ate better, he dressed better, and he lived in a better house. He lived right up next to his master in the attic or the basement. He ate the same food his master ate and wore his same clothes. And he could talk just like his master, master, good diction. And he loved his master more than his master loved himself. That's why he didn't want his master hurt. If the master got sick, he'd say, what's the matter, boss, we sick? When the master's house caught a fire, he'd try and put the fire out. He didn't want his master's house burned. He never wanted his master's property threatened. And he was more defensive of it than the master was. That was the house Negro. Just how far is this syndrome ingrained in every single human? To what extent would I go to side with my captors? What would be an external or situational variable? 
In the 1950s, Harry Harlow conducted a series of famous but controversial experiments on monkeys at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Harlow's findings had substantial implications on our understanding of attachment, but by today's standards his work would largely be considered unethical. In one of his most famous experiments, Harlow separated young monkeys from their mothers as soon as they were born and stuck them in cages with two fake mothers, a soft one wrapped in cloth that did nothing, and a cold mechanical mother made of wire that nonetheless did provide food. But despite being a cupboard mother, the young baby monkeys didn't bond with her. When Harlow or his team scared the baby monkeys with a strange contraption, the monkeys ran and clinged not to their wire source of life-sustaining nourishment, but to the soft, cuddly, and otherwise useless cloth mother. This suggested that warmth and comfort was more important than food when it came to nurturing attachment. Harlow also built a rejecting mother, which used a blast of pressurized air to push baby monkeys away. But instead of finding another source of comfort, these monkeys clung even tighter at all times than monkeys raised without rejecting mothers. And this is what blows my mind. The instinct for warmth and comfort in newborn creatures is so strong, it not only resists attempts to frustrate it, but is paradoxically strengthened by it. Eckerd Hess tested this by using electric shocks to discourage ducklings from following the object they were imprinted on, but it only strengthened the behavior and made them follow more closely than ever before. The fact that a wire mother or a rejecting mother or receiving electric shocks for attaching to your mother would cause more attachment, more love, more dependence, seems like a paradox. But paradoxes can teach us. As Oscar Wilde put it, a paradox is the truth standing on its head to attract attention. And what gets our attention here is the effect uncertainty can have. In 1955, A.E. Fisher conducted an experiment on puppies. His team separated puppies into three groups. Members of the first group were treated kindly every time they approached a researcher. Members of the second group were punished for approaching the researchers. And puppies in the third group were randomly treated kindly or punished. They grew up never knowing what to expect. Their world was not a world of kindness or punishment, but rather one of uncertainty. What's really chilling is that the study found that that group, the third group of puppies, wound up being the most attached to the researchers. The third group loved the researchers the strongest and was the most dependent upon them. Guy Murchie called this the polarity principle. Stress, including the mental stress of uncertainty, is an ingredient in attachment or love and perhaps even manifestations of hatred, its polar opposite, somehow enhance love. Uncertainty psychologically can lead to some of the greatest feelings of attachment and dependence. Uncertainty. 
That is what strengthens attachment and dependency the most, the strongest. Uncertainty. Wow. You know what I just realized? I've heard that word a heck of a lot in recent times. In fact, I'd say it's almost repeated ad nauseum. Take care of people. We're people. 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 Family. 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 Families. 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 Even now. Especially now. Especially now. Right now. Now more than ever. More than ever. Today. More than ever. Today. More than ever. In times like this. At times like these. During these difficult times. In these troubled times. Challenging times. Trying times. In these times of uncertainty. During this time of great uncertainty. During these uncertain times. During these uncertain times. In uncertain times. In uncertain times. Uncertain times. Unprecedented times. Unprecedented times. Unprecedented times. This unprecedented moment in our history. That's certainly an interesting parallel, but now it's time to take a big step back and think about what all this has shown us and Stanley Milgram's television and antisocial behavior because they are interconnected. In the introduction, in the last sentence, Stanley gives a very, very interesting and a little Easter egg, if you will, on the additional research studies being conducted. Again, the last sentence of the introduction. This is page two, if you have the physical copy. An additional group of studies, sponsored by the U.S. Public Health Service, 1972, was undertaken after the present research was underway. It did not influence our investigation, and so will not be discussed here. Well, that is a reassuring sentence if I've ever read one. But more seriously, could this truly be? Our own government is involved in conducting field tests through media and antisocial behavior. How and where do they involve themselves in all of this? Where do they show up? Well, to reference the blue eye, brown eye study, rather than look upon my classmates in acceptance and sit in disbelief at these external situational variables, I will look back at the teacher, the source of the division, and surprising to many, there is a source or a teacher to look at. There is a covert and hidden teacher who is exploiting these vulnerabilities, these human characteristics, basic, basic instincts, and circumstantial variables at every chance they get. Manipulate the news in the United States by channeling it through some foreign country. And we're looking at that very carefully. Do you have any people being paid by who are contributing to a major circulation American journal? We do have people who submit pieces to other two American journals. Do you have any people paid by who are working for television networks? This, I think, gets into the kind of uh, getting into the details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into in executive session. 
Oh, jeez. Ladies and gentlemen, I sincerely apologize for the unprofessional manner in which I'm about to act, but I just opened a huge, oh, I just opened a huge can of worms and I'm gonna have to cut the addition short right here. This is way messier than I could have imagined. As always, the sources and references to the claims made on this podcast can be found at farmtotable.news. I'm gonna attempt to clean this up, but in the interim, I wish you all good health and I look forward to speaking again. Signing off.